Insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Hey, welcome to I Insight into Instruction, Zoom edition. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm fabulous, but you can call me Thomas. Today, due to the lovely little one who you hear in our intro and outro, she's sick. We're recording over Zoom. We apologize for any sound inconsistencies. This week, we read chapter 11, the conclusion of our text for our teaching and learning 414 methods and materials for bilingual ESL education class. This chapter is titled, Read to Analyze and Infer, and to provide insight as well as scaffolds and strategies to help multilingual students engage in thinking critically about the text or text content when reading literature. On page 235, the text states, inference and analysis are student opportunity to engage in higher level thinking and communication task of making and justifying claims with text evidence. In our text, each section follows a format where the book highlights the following. Purpose, which is a learning target for the section. Engage, what students will do to learn and demonstrate current understandings. Observe, what the teachers will watch and listen for as students engage. Support, information on using what you have learned from observing the students to prioritize what you will teach and support to help them individually. Choose support strategically, a menu of support options to choose or lose based on students' needs, therefore strategically choosing what is most relevant to the student at hand. The subcategories on which the options are based are build background, scaffold language during a task, and teach language beyond a task. And lastly, questions to reflect and adapt teaching. As mentioned in episode eight, reflection is an extremely important part of teaching, whether it be during a lesson, after class, or even at the end of the day. This section is really about reflecting and watching students each time they annotate and discuss comparisons. From there, we reflect on our goals, for example, how scaffolds are working for the students and adjusting in the moment. Though we will not be covering each section due to time constraints, we will be pulling out what we felt was most beneficial personally, what we related to as students and as future teachers, as well as things we may have questions about and want to research further as we continue our education. So the purpose of 11.1, our first section, make claims about texts reads, I make claims to express my own opinions, interpretations, and conclusions about the texts I read. I communicate claims, clearly in speaking and writing to strengthen the power of my voice in the world, from page 236. And our question for this first section is, what stood out to you about this section academically, personally, or professionally? As far as academically and personally, if you go to page 236, the engage section, the part where they talk about where you're reading, rereading, annotating, and discussing, I think that for me, is something that I do personally. It's the way that I am able to understand the information. So I'll kind of browse through it. I'll reread it to sort of pull out the things that I need to pull out. 
And as I'm rereading it, I annotate. The thing that really solidifies everything is the discussion. Again, this is why we have the podcast, because in order to remember the information, I need student discourse, because just by stating it and talking about it and looking at it at the same time, that really helps me. But then also on page 240, they talk about analyzing claims and mentor texts. So they talked about a bunch of different things that you can use to along, I guess, along with the standard readings that you already have is inserting these different either academic texts. But for me, this is what always keeps my interest because it breaks up the readings with things like the stated TED Talk transcripts. I find those things much more interesting than academic texts. So it keeps me going, I guess, in the classes. But it also allows me as a teacher to find the text that might be more engaging while still ensuring that those texts are modeling that effective communication. And then as far as professionally, a lot of these are the same for me for all of these sections, but observe and support is a big one for me. So walking around the class, listening in order to support those students that are present where they need that specific support at that moment. And something that seems to be really needed in my practicum is just more of that spur of the moment support through just listening and saying, this is where I'm seeing these gaps in the student's understanding, then being able to utilize that support in order to help them move forward in whatever it is that they're doing at the time. And it's math, so I know that sometimes that is a little bit harder to intentionally plan differentiation, but still, I think that would be a benefit for any EL students as well as like vocab walls, sentence starters, whatever, none of those are intentionally utilized. Then the last one for me is the personalization chart on page 238. Uh, I think that that might help because it's an if-then, so it helps teachers provide the support that's needed to the individual students based on how they're interacting when they're asked to make this chapter inferential claims. So that if and then, I think that any teacher that takes that into their classroom is really just giving them that understanding of that spur of the moment support. And so they're seeing that right there and they have something on a piece of paper within a a table that really just says, this is something that you could use if you see this. For me, I, um, when I read this chapter, it made me think of my, my science class that I'm currently in in practicum. They use this app called Amplify. And in the science portion, they always start with three different claims. And then they have to go through the section that they're doing in the different tabs. And they have to support their claim, not support their claim, and then figure out which one of the three claims is actually correct and why. And they have to have that student discourse around it. And it's really reminded me of it. Now, it wasn't that great on its own because you kind of need, you need the support from the teacher. And I feel like that part was lacking, but if used effectively, making a claim about the text you're about to read in which they were even in my ELO class, when they are using Amplify, they always had this claim And then they went through the text and read different little sections. And each little section was like, does this support your claim? Yes or no. Does this, which claim does this support one or two or three? And then goes through and it kind of like does help with that scaffolding aspect with answering the question or either proving or disproving the claim. And so taking that out of Amplify and using that in a classroom now makes more sense to me as a teacher, like making predictions. I never really called it as analyzing, but now I can now now have a word for it, but it's more like making prediction about what you're going to read, taking that book walk through, and then making claims, well, I think this is it. Now let me go through and find some supporting 
parts and that is being used by having to make sure that those discourses are happening and providing ways to have the scaffold that discourse that's going to happen to support and dispreview the claim. That's what really stood up me academically as well as professionally, because I kind of do that. I go through a book. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go through and see what it's about. I go and look at the titles, like go and look at the big wording and then see if, okay, well, this is what I think it's about. And I go through it and either prove or disprove it. Personally, I don't really do that with a lot of different things. So I can't really answer that one there, but yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate what you had to say about claims being used really commonly in your classrooms that you've been in for practicum and then being used as entry tasks. I think that's really interesting where I went first thing when I saw this chapter and with claims in general is I've seen them usually more so in the middle of a lesson. This chapter actually really highlights a lot of what I did in my ELL lesson plan, the scaffolded lesson plan that we just finished up. I did mine where we were comparing and contrasting two similar stories from two different parts of the world. And then they were going to make claims about the the characters, settings, and events and how those are similar or different using Venn diagrams something they discussed in this section was about using conversation frames around making claims and teaching that academic language. And that really stood out to me because I did have conversation frames about making claims within my lesson, but I hadn't thought about accentuating the actual phrases that were used specifically to make the claim. I thought that was an important part. And I think something in general that I found that's great about starting with making a claim, and you touched on this slightly as well, Thomas, is that it is a really low floor, high ceiling activity because you're making that claim. And that is, that is an argument that you can go on to back up if you have the textual evidence and that higher order thinking. But it can also be a spot where they can just make their claim and back it with personal experience or prior knowledge and still place value on that in the classroom as well before we dive deeper into textual evidence or really dense material. And so I just thought about it personally. I was I was looking through my notes and realized I kind of do it personally when I get in arguments. I go into the, uh, I'm at, I start at the very four pillars of making a claim. It's like, I feel this way. And no one can tell me I'm wrong because it's my feelings. And that's kind of like how you, that where you're saying that low floor, high ceiling, you can't argue with someone's thoughts and feelings. If they think a certain way, whether it's whatever, it's what they think, what they may feel and they believe, and then they can either find stuff that supports it or disproves it, but they're not wrong because still, I think it's this way and we'll see how it goes. So Exactly. And not to bring math into everything, but... (laughs) In my algebra course, we focused a lot this term on different types of justification and how, yes, technically all of these different levels are justifications and they are all technically like an argument and a reason. But what you find a lot with students is the lower level justification of because the teacher said so or because the book says so or because math, right? And I think that's really similar to what we see in literature with the fact or when teaching ELA because it can start off really basic and it can start off with just what's on the page. And then as the students progress, we get into the deeper reasons of why and the inferences from within the text, et cetera, that we're going to end up actually looking at within our sections of this chapter. But I just think it's, it's a really interesting spot to start a lesson or start just a thought process with a claim, because then you're almost working backwards instead of starting 
at the nitty gritty bottom of the why and the bones. You get to start with a statement and work your way back to the root, which is really nice sometimes. The purpose of 11.2, justify claims with text evidence reads, I support my claims with evidence to strengthen the power of my voice and help others understand my perspective. Justify claims with evidence is a skill that helps me speak and write with influence in and beyond school. Was there anything in this chapter that stood out to you more than the rest and why? The purpose of 11.2, justify claims with text evidence reads, I support my claims with evidence to strengthen the power of my voice and help others understand my perspective. Justify claims with evidence is a skill that helps me speak and write with influence in and beyond school. Was there anything in this chapter that stood out to you more than the rest and why? Alrighty, so the section in this that really stood out to me was the personalization chart on page 248 because it answered a lot of the questions that I actually had for myself as I was building the ELL lesson plan. I wanted my students to justify at all different EL levels, but what I ended up doing was some students were more so justifying by mentioning events versus my higher up ELLs were going to be working on using in-text citations and paraphrasing and like the more fine-tuned points. But part of what I worried with with that lesson plan was, am I challenging my level one students and level two students enough? And how do we make in-text justifications and text evidence be accessible at all levels? And that's where this personalization chart comes in so well. It's like if it says if students don't yet demonstrate that they understand the concept of supporting a claim, right, which that's the start. And it says to use building background strategies. And I did stuff along those lines in my lesson plan for sure. But then it's like if students use text evidence that's random or they can't seem to grasp certain elements of text evidence, how to go about scaffolding that even further. And I just I want to go back and revise my lesson plan at this point because some of this is going to make it so you can have even higher expectations for your students because it's no longer like text evidence in my mind was something that had to be only at a higher level in order to use. But this just shows how accessible you can make that concept. And so I, I just really enjoyed it because it's gonna be a great resource in the future. Yeah, I definitely feel like that was something that I utilized in my scaffold list, my scaffolded lesson plan too. Um, the, the part that really stood out to me, I guess, and it could just be because it was sort of reiterated when Shay and Anna, two of the people in our cohort, did their presentation, their mini lesson. So mine was the engage again. I think that that's also because to me, that's a little bit more active and a little bit more how I learn. So on page 256, the engage is reading, annotating, discussing, writing a short response. So they taught that mini lesson. They had us read that book and then they had us utilize post-its to write notes about the book and what we were seeing within the book, which I connected to Deanna Day's children's lit class last semester is using those post-it notes and taking that information out in order to have conversations. But with this, 
they had us utilize that in order to not only converse, but also to write those one to two sentences that represented, I think, the main theme of the book. So for me, I just connected with that. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily something that every student is going to connect to, but it just felt like a very linear and understandable way to go about it is read, annotate, discuss, and write your response because you're getting that individual reading or reading with your peers. You're annotating that together is actually what they're having us do and then discussing it together. So you're getting all of this group activity and writing a short response. So every single person in our groups, at least, and I feel like if you do intentional groupings or intentional pairings, you'll have an even amount of participation by completing it that way. So that's something that that really stood out to me. And like I said, it could have been just because it was solidified by seeing it in a mini lesson. And I also did it for my stuff for the lesson plan 73. And we use it instead of it being inside of a book. I have three-year-olds, but they totally could get text evidence and then write it down. But we used a video instead. And instead of getting text evidence, they got vocal evidence about what the vocabulary we really needed. So I put the words in my scaffolds plan. I put the words up. And then I left it up there and I said, okay, think about these words. I want you to think about what they mean. Have a small little discussion Why start the video. And then I started the video and then they thought about what these words actually meant. And they also, inside the video, gave detailed definitions of what they were. And then we came back together, had more discussion. And then we took that discussion and then applied it to the drawing that they took of my demonstration earlier. So it was kind of like annotating and justifying the claim of what the the vocabulary is and then putting into practice. And I also do this a lot in my personal reading. I will ask myself questions inside my annotations of my books. And that's how I take notes. I really don't take notes as in like, this means this. It's like, how am I going to interact with this text and write a question and um, write the main concept so I know what's going really on in the text. The purpose of 11.3, make inferences about characters, reads, I make inferences to make meaning of what I read. I support my inferences with evidence to strengthen the power of my voice and help others understand my perspective. Page 256. What are some things that you got from the chapter? What connected to you in regards to past experiences in education or in current learning and or practicum assignments? So what really stood out for me with this chapter is that in my practicum class, again, I am in three different, with three different teachers. I have two science teachers and I have an ELA teacher in middle school. And we're reading really deep text and really old English, even though it's their newer text released within the last 10 years. It was with Frankenstein and they really had to understand Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. And they never gave the monster a name. And they had to go through and make claims about this character and then infer what this character is feeling, why, why this character is doing what it's doing, what traits they have, and how does this character change the beginning to end? And they had to write this huge paper about it. They were for Frankenstein killing the beast, the Frankenstein's monster, or were they against killing Frankenstein's monster? And then they had to figure out and base a claim around it. What really stops me the most is on page 262, that conversation prompts and linguistic frame examples. My ELA teacher did a lot of this 
to support them before going into writing their couple of pages about either they were for this death or against this death. And it really like really solidified what they really needed to do and what was that evidence behind it to really understand what was really going on. And then I also do this really with my kids at work. We go through a book and there's typically always one main character and we take this journey with this character no, David, no, is a really good example about like, he is rambunctious and why is he rambunctious? And at the beginning of the book, they think he's really bad, but if by the end of it, there's another reason. And they get the preschoolers go over time. We really just like, why do you think he's feeling this way? What's really going on and having a lot of those verbal communications with them. And I think that's what it will take for ELL students to help really grasp everything about a book is really just talking to them and having them have their thoughts and their claims and then having them have that discourse with their peers. So I guess for me, um, I definitely made some some similar connections to what both of you are saying because of having to do like our literacy lesson plan and things like that. But what I found was, again, I sometimes need to see it in order to understand it. So I need that audio, visual, and tactile. So when Brooke and Amanda did their mini lesson on this section, I actually started seeing how it did connect to not only my, my lit plan, but my scaffolded lesson plan, which I did around my lit plan. So I saw that they had us read that book. They utilized the visuals, tables, conversation prompts, linguistic frames, all of those from page 262. And then they had a graphic organizer where we were looking at character feelings. So it was, what's the character's names? What are they feeling? How are you getting that information from what the text is saying? And using that in order to support what you say the character is feeling. And then, of course, they had us write that sentence at the bottom. So the character breakdown, utilize those linguistic frames too. And then they also had on the board they had word bank examples with visuals of different emotions which I thought was really amazing I thought they did a really great job even though they were sort of hurried because we had another person coming in to talk so I got a lot from that even though I don't think that they were able to finish it so it's similar to what I did for my scaffolded lesson plan and my lit plan because that was based around reading a book and choosing the students choosing their favorite character to both draw and write about. But the thing is, is taking a story, removing the pictures from it and requiring the students to make these inferences from text only. So what they were doing is circling character traits and then putting that information into their graphic organizer, using the information to draw and color a character. So if they said they have blonde hair, they would probably color in blonde hair, label it with in-text citations, and then use that information from that graphic organizer with linguistic frames to, at the bottom under the picture, describe their favorite character, utilizing all of that information that they had slowly built upon. So I thought it was really useful to see what they did and how they did it because it wasn't the same as what I had put on my plan. Now, both you, Thomas, and, and Annabelle talked about how this connected in relation to literature, but currently in my practicum, I'm in a middle school math class. And Annabelle, you were saying you mentioned context clues. And so I feel like that's something that could be used in math, maybe not necessarily the way that you would do it in literature, but it could be used for those word problems, especially when you're trying to gain that context, connecting the words to make that expression or that equation. And I think by having that, it would help our EL students to be able to understand the base of the question in the first place, because that's what I'm seeing is that the problem isn't that they're 
just not doing the work. It's that they're not having a base understanding of what the question is asking in the first place. And I had hoped that my teacher might be able to show me how to scaffold and differentiate when it comes to mathematics, but it didn't end up working that way. And I, I want to, at this point, it's sort of hard for me to wrap my head around how to utilize that in math, just because we focus more on subjects that have a lot of language and math in itself is also sort of its own language. So I would definitely be interested in going into a math class that that does sentence frames, but I feel like that might be seen more in elementary school rather than middle school with the EL and multilingual students. Though I do still sort I still feel that that should be utilized in middle school because you have these underserved students. Oh, 100%. And I think you touched on something so huge and so key when it comes to decoding word problems. That's something we see in gen ed students and non-ELL students as well, is they have acquired the skills to execute a problem. They have not acquired the skills to understand the question. I did a student interview this term and they were presented with a pattern and then they were supposed to look at that pattern and essentially come up with an equation to represent the number of dots in, uh, at any step within this equi- uh, within this pattern. And it didn't say it in that specific of a language. It was very open-ended. And my student was very mathematically able to do it had they known what they were supposed to be doing. The issue came from decoding the question itself. And I could only imagine if English wasn't their first language, having to first decode it and kind of think about from English to the language you're most comfortable with. And then from there into math sense, it's just so difficult without scaffolding. Students who have English as their first language and that I am included in those students, even now as a college student, I still have a hard time decoding word problems. So I definitely empathize with all of the students, but especially those where English is not their first language, or at least the language that they're most comfortable with. The purpose of 11.4, make and justify claims about theme and author's message reads, we talk and write about themes to deepen our understanding of literature. We learn to make claims and justify thinking with evidence to strengthen the power of our voices in and beyond the classroom. Page 266. What part of this section did you really connect with? Was there anything that you can see using in your future classroom? Why? So what I really connected with in 11.4 is kind of what I talked about in 11.3 is once they made those inferences inside about a character and inferring using the text, now they have to like justify those inferences about the theme and the author's message. And using that, first they have to like build the background, which is basically what they were doing about inferring about character traits. And then using that information by justifying with the exact text. And what I really liked on this was on page 271 about having that uh, scaffold language during a task, having those conversation prompts and those possible linguistic frames. I think I'll use that a lot more inside my classroom, just because I'll be, te- I hopefully, fingers crossed, teaching two kids who are in that are K through three. And I think having them posted, but also using them for me as exact questions you use for those students will be very beneficial 
I'll be using the same same type of question over and over again. And I think using that for ELL students is really awesome, just so that they know what what I'm always going to ask when reading a book. I was like, what do you think about the author's message after they've already looked at the characters and having those having those conversations with the students? So for me, I also really liked that scaffolding language during a task, but Another part that was something that I connected with and that I could see using in my future classroom is that model reading for theme on page 270 under the building background and concepts section. And I feel like that read aloud and all of that can provide intonation for sections that help students understand meaning better. So take modeling the theme with one or two stories. You're using that think aloud. So you'll model the re- reading, you'll reflect you'll have students discuss, and then you're modeling, explaining a theme with a sentence and writing phrases and things like that. So I think that the model and then the word banks and exemplars are something that helps me as a student. So I feel like that's something that I'll be putting into my future classroom because it's really hitting all of those things that I need in order to succeed as a student is hearing it, seeing it, having exemplars so that I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Because for me, when I don't have an exemplar, I sometimes am just like, I don't know where I need to go from here. So personally, that's the one that really hit home for me as both a student and a future teacher. And I think it'd be really easy to have an example of a book you've already done and taking that, like, even if it's a couple of levels down, like, let's start with a very hungry caliper. What does he really want to do? What's the message? That he's hungry and he's going to go into a butterfly. Have that already pre-done, not necessarily pre-done, but do it with the kids and then put that up as an example so they can always reinfer back to it and through the process of it. Right. And you're starting starting at a lower level, which is fine because maybe there are students that need that assistance because they are EL students. Seeing that exemplar at a lower level will help them understand as you slowly scaffold to a higher level. Yeah, that's huge. And it's funny because what stood out to me about this section probably wouldn't have stood out to me until I have interacted with y'all because early on in this term, you guys did a mini lesson and part of it was employing the um, the Freyer model, which we've seen quite a lot, but I remember talking with you guys about it. And on page 269, we talk about how to teach concept vocabulary with the Freyer model, which we've already talked about a lot this term, but sometimes I forget how it can be used for so much such as theme or such as like characters and the non-example section really stood out to me as well because that could be a great way to highlight what a theme isn't or what a in this example what a noun isn't without using student work necessarily as your non-example it's really easy sometimes to just think that something like theme or the big idea would be easy to teach or easy to communicate to your ELs. But I was thinking about it and we refer to the big idea and frames like those phrases a lot with like without really thinking about it. For example, in our science class and our practicum class in the fall, the term big enchilada was used quite often, right? But to a non-native English speaker that might not make sense. And so I think really digging into what does a theme mean using something like the Freyer model, even though it's not necessarily vocab and is much more conceptual, could be really helpful. 
Um, so that's what stood out to me and it made me realize that maybe I need to spend a little bit more time on that rather than just using a metaphor or phrase such as big, big idea or big enchilada or the, the main idea. All of those are like good other names for a theme. And those are what I remember using to remember what theme is, but that's not necessarily going to work for your ELs. So it just made me have another like teacher moment of, oh yeah, that needs more explanation. And I think it'd be really cool to have like a picture of the big enchilada up and be like, this is the main theme, the big enchilada, the big idea, but have it as a graphic organizer on the wall. So then they can always reference it like an anchor chart, but we still can have like those words that we're going to use for it. But also be like, okay, hold up. What is this enchilada? Is it this food I'm going to eat? What, what? And then they have a reference, but like, oh yeah, the big, every time you see the big enchilada, you like kind of point at it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, the theme or wherever they are in their learning at that point. Yeah. And the level one students, it's a lot of pointing and visuals that are needed. A level one and level two English language learners or multilingual learners. I do remember when you were talking about the, the non-examples with the Freyer model, when we were done with our mini lesson and we did talk about non-examples, David was saying sometimes non-examples are actually really not supposed to be used just because it can confuse, especially those level one, level two students. So it's like for those things, you do have to pick and choose really intentionally and specifically for certain levels of understanding. So I do know that that is, for me, it's great to see non-examples, but for someone who is just learning language, we may not want to go to that because they just need the base understanding to start so that they can, it's sort of like sarcasm in a way. I think of a non-example as being sarcasm where you're saying something, but you're meaning something else. And when you're taking things too literally and looking at it logically, a non-example can can create confusion. Yeah. And I think that's, Thank you for pointing that out because I was totally placing this once again. I was like thinking about my lesson plan in about fifth grade and the most recent fifth grade class that I've been in. And while there are multilingual students in that classroom, a lot of them are higher levels. So those non examples have been helpful to me because they're higher level ELLs. But that's where it comes back to knowing your students in your classroom and knowing their levels and why it's so important to know all the different variations that you need to utilize within your classroom specifically in order to hit everyone. The purpose of 11.5, compare and contrast reads. I compare and contrast ideas to make sense of what I read and connect ideas within and across texts. Making comparisons help me think creatively and deeply about what I read and learn. I learned to communicate comparisons to share my unique insights with others. Page 274. Where have you seen this model in your past or present? What part do you feel you connect with as a student and as a future educator? Alrighty, so to answer the first part of that question of where have you seen this modeled in your past or present, I think as soon as I saw the words compare and contrast, I went straight to Venn diagrams. That is where I've seen compare and contrast used across probably every concept, like every content area in school is in Venn diagrams. And it's really helpful because that that visual stuck with me. And that's how I think about comparing and contrasting now within conversation and outside of academia altogether. And then something that I connected with as both a teacher and a student, because as a student thinking about my ELL plan that I just made, but also as a teacher with that ELL plan in mind, 
was on page 278, where we talk about different ways that we build and model this comparison and contrasting. And one of them was build background from life experience to text, which I think we as a podcast talk about a lot, accessing prior knowledge, because as it says, it says build on students' natural ability to compare and contrast by having them first compare and contrast any two things relevant to their interest and background knowledge, and then to build from that experience to compare and contrast. And I think it's so true because we do it so often. Comparing and contrasting is, it's just a normal part of conversation. But what makes it interesting is being able to make connections from your comparing and contrasting to your inferences, to the claims made previously, to the academic text and the justifications that we've talked about throughout this chapter. That's where it gets a little bit harder. And that's where the modeling comes in and the model closed reading to compare and the model uh, model writing to compare. Both of those I used a lot in my ELL plan because those were what worked for me as a student. The close reading being annotation, I think annotation was introduced to me primarily in middle school through my ELA classes. And it was, at first it was a pain. I was like, why are we having to write at the same time as reading? But then once we were able to look and compare our notes and our annotations on two different texts and find those highlighted similarities, it became so much more helpful. And I ended up using that same skill later on in science classes or even math classes. The ability to compare and contrast between two super similar concepts can be really helpful to identify what are those main differences. And I think that's kind of what we see with the close reading. And then with writing to compare, that's where the Venn diagram comes into play. And that was my um, my main form of formative assessment within the ELL lessons plan that I made because they made three separate Venn diagrams to compare and contrast. And it was really nice because Venn diagrams and comparing and contrasting in general can be accessible to all levels of your students if you just scaffold how they are expressing the comparison and contrast within those circles. Um, My level one started off with phrases or visuals, and by the end of it, we had the in-text citations and justifications because that's just how it flowed across language, yet you can still teach the comparison and contrasting very, very early on as well, which I'm sure you guys have experience with as preschool teachers, but I've realized yeah, it's, it's so inherent. It's just a matter of teaching them how to maneuver it within an academic context. Yeah. And for me, I actually, uh, I'm, I looked at the Venn diagram as well, um, but going to the past or present, how that was modeled. I remember using this for writing assignments in a multitude of grades. So, I mean, I feel like it started really early where you would look at this character versus this character or this setting versus this setting and you look at the same and the different, and that turned into that compare and contrast. Same and differences is a really easy way for younger kids to understand. I even feel like that's in those highlights magazines that I used to play with at the doctor's office or the dentist's office. Like that's a really understandable concept, but having that visual, like you were saying, the Venn diagram is a way to organize your thoughts really cohesively. I also looked at the matrix, so that same page, 280, the matrix to generate and organize a task-specific word bank. That was something that I can see myself connecting to as both a student and a future educator, because you're looking at it, you're creating this word bank, but you're doing it in this really simplistic, visual, organized, clean way. And it makes it really understandable for all levels because you're, it's less wordy, you're more straightforward because you're just creating these 
differences and similarities with one to two words. And Annabelle, you said earlier that your scaffolded lesson plan was based around comparing, contrasting, and making those claims. So I'm I'm curious if after completing that lesson plan and then reading the book and then experiencing the, the mini lessons this week, would you modify your lesson plan just due to that, that reflection and what you've sort of sussed out? I think my most major modification would probably be something that I noticed about two thirds of the way through my lesson plan. And it was that I think it would have been better spaced out because these chapters, along with our mini lessons, really highlighted to me how conceptual certain aspects are that I was planning on addressing them as vocabulary points. And I said that they were stuff that we had learned about previously. We had learned about setting, theme, events, and those types of vocab words. And I treated them as vocabulary within my lesson plan, which is great because those are vocab terms, but they're also these huge concepts that I think after reading these chapters and after working through our many lessons, I realized need more time and would probably need revisited. So my hugest thing would be taking the time to draw out and elaborate on those to get a deeper understanding of it rather than just seeing them as term and definition. Like they could be their own lesson plan. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think making sure to keep that in mind and not overly simplifying what character or what setting is in order to get through these other tasks and standards that my lesson plan had structured out would have been where I would take this. I remember eons ago when I was in elementary school, we used both of these diagrams when I was in elementary school. We did a characteristic outline and we did it on main characters of stories. So we had like three or four stories. There are big stories for the year and we read them. And then we did uh, we had this like matrix up on the board and we would fill it in with events that's happened. And then we would, as students would go and take Venn diagrams and use their compare and contrasting and fill it in of how these characters were, where they were in their lives, who their siblings were, what was the main theme behind them. And the teacher intentionally chose books that had very similar relatable aspects about them as well as differences the books had very different cultures about it and we were comparing contrasting about those cultures we read a book about a, a little indian boy a chinese boy a if i'm not mistaken japanese boy but we did a bunch of them and like the theme around it was that we're all the same but different and it really opened my eyes as a student that comparing these people, these, these children, that they all were loved. They all had families. They all looked a little different, but they had all these overarching things. And it really helped me as a student learn and understand those characters better and also people around me better. I know that's not really what like focused on ELL students, but now I can see how I can use that as a future educator to help basically do the same thing. And it also reminded me of the lesson that we wrote about for our diversity class and how I really wanted to compare and contrast historical figures in a different way so that it has visibility for students inside the classroom that all people can do all types of things.
Thank you so much for listening. We are at the end of spring 2022, but in summer, we will have another EL class for our endorsement, along with teaching fine arts and a physical education class. Our hope is to get a website up and running so that we can not only share our words, but also images that come along with our future classes. We hope that once we have completed our site, you will follow our journey there. Thanks again. coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.